For the second week in a row, we've got pruning on the brain. But this week, we'll focus on ornamentals. Welcome to Longleaf Breeze, subsistence farmers using three simple principles, approaching but never reaching subsistence. It's got to be fun while we're doing it, and we don't make all misstatements. And now, Lee and Amanda Borden. Thanks, Adrian, and welcome to our podcast of February the 27th, 2014. This is pruning month, and we have been spending a good bit of time pruning fruit trees, but we also have had to take some time and prune some of our ornamentals. And I guess the first question that we should address in a program like this is, we're all about growing food. Why are we even worrying about ornamentals? Right. It's an important activity, though. If you're going to plant the plant, you know, we'll go back to the adage, which is very true, the right plant in the right place. So one of the first reasons we got involved with this on our own property is sometimes we didn't put the right plant in the right place, and we're having to deal with it now by pruning that plant back. Sometimes it's it's simply crowd control out there. Um, An example would be I planted a Confederate rose out on Veg Hill. Um, They're beautiful plants. They get huge, which I didn't think about at the time. They have blossoms in the late summer, and they attract pollinators to those blossoms. It holds the soil beautifully. Glad it's out there. It's too big for where it is. It's crowding out the plants next to it. So I prune that plant back so that it can still live out there, but it can coexist with other plants and play well with others, that kind of thing. Um, and we have another example. We have at our lake place some crepe myrtles that are just beautiful, but they've required some pruning just to, again, to keep them under control because they're a little close to the house. And in those, both cases you named, those are plants that really are not the right place, right plant in the right place. Uh, in the Confederate rose, it's basically our ignorance. In the case of the crepe myrtle, um, I don't want to say this to anyone who would be offended, but sometimes nurseries sell you a plant and tell you it's one thing when it's really something else. That's true. And that's what we ended up with at the Lake Place. My brother Ruffin was the one who did the landscaping there, and the crepe myrtles he planted were supposed to be weeping crepe myrtles, meaning they would stay fairly low and have a sort of a domey kind of shape uh, when they are, in fact, vigorous uprights. So... So, and we're adapting to it. And and one thing to keep in mind, it's something that most of our listeners probably already know, but um, I've learned as a truism in my landscape design courses, which is you need to visualize the mature or adult stage of that plant when you plant it. Yes, it looks like such a tiny little thing now when you put it out, but keep in mind how large is that plant going to be at maturity. Um, And I have that problem with the gardenia that I planted out um, in the flower bed. And I'm going to have to either move that gardenia or keep it pruned. And of course, it's, it's, it could be a lovely large plant someday if I move it, but you know, it's a decision to be made. So, and in that case, it's my own foolhardiness. I can't blame any nursery. That plant was a gift 
And I'm sure the person who gave it to me warned me that it would be large. But when I put it out, I couldn't visualize that. So my own mistake, which I'll try not to make again. And when we walk amongst a bunch of ornamentals, we we sometimes get the impression that they're doing what they're doing very naturally. And in some cases they are. And if you're careful to choose the right plant for the right place, they often can get by very well without a great deal of pruning and attention. But nearly all ornamental plants need some kind of pruning, basically for the same reason that somebody like Brad Pitt needs a stylist so that it looks like he didn't have to do anything. <laughs> right. Yes, and, and that's a, a, a something that we'll want to mention. Just Sometimes it's for the sheer health of the plant. In fact, most of the time it is. It's not just aesthetics. It's, it's to keep that plant healthy, which is one of the reasons that even as we are subsistence farmers and interested in, as you pointed out at the beginning, growing food, Ornamentals serve a purpose for us because especially if they're blooming plants that attract pollinators, that is important for growing fruit and vegetables, as is where we live on a slope holding the soil, preventing erosion. And uh, I'd much rather have some pretty ornamental plants doing that than having to plant grass everywhere or have a lawn and certainly better than having weeds. So... um, Ornamentals serve a purpose in our lives, and um, I might as well fess up and say that I just like to look at them. There I like you go. This, I appreciate their aesthetics. We are unapologetic in our desire to surround ourselves with beauty rather than surround ourselves with ugliness. So mm-hmm. um, we like pretty plants. So um, well, wh- Why don't we talk a little bit about what tools you need to get started pruning? I think that's a good place to go. I would start with an understanding of what this plant wants to be. That's key, and you cannot assume that you can prune any plant to any shape. You basically need to allow the plant to be what it wants to be in as graceful a manner as possible. So that's a that's sort of an overview tool, if you will, just an understanding of what, what kind of plant you're dealing with. And that would apply to your fruit trees as well as to Certainly the, does. Yeah. And, and I say that as a person who has set mm-hmm. out to force some trees to be different from what they want to be. That's right. As we've <laughs> talked about before, you're trellising trees. And in some cases, those trees are sold and meant to be dwarf trees, but there are some others that are not dwarfs and you're trying to keep them low. All right. So now the more conventional understanding of the word tool, um, obviously you start with a pair of hand pruners and you and I each have our own uh, pair of Felco pruners that are our everyday go-to appliance. We use those more than we use anything else. Probably Eight out of ten cuttings we make are going to be with our Felco pruners. And then for a larger limb. And for a larger (laughs) limb, we use lopping shears. Now, there are some purists among us who don't care for lopping shears at all, and they would say if it's too large for your pruners, you should be using a saw. Right, a pruning saw, hand saw. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, but we use the lopping shears and have not had any trouble uh, using them. Um, And then probably the third tool that needs to be part of your arsenal is a saw. We own several. Uh, We have not so far opted to have one of those little folding hand saws. 
haven't seen a need to own one of those. But when we actually need a saw, we have a pruning saw, a bow right. saw. Right, and, and um, Jim Davis and I were doing some pruning at, at the governor's mansion the other day on a Japanese maple, and, and we'll talk more about that particular plant in a few minutes. But we did run into some branches in which the loppers, even though that's not the right tool for a Japanese maple, but neither would a, a concave pruner, which he had those, um, cut it off, and he had to resort to the handsaw because that was it was just sheer size of the plant. There was no lopper and no pruner device that by hand was going to, pruning device that by hand would remove that branch. It had to be done with a saw. And it, when, we're, when we speak of using a saw on a big limb on an ornamental, uh, you, that brings up the three-cut uh, methodology. You want to talk a little bit about how that works? Well, why don't you, since you brought well, it up? Well, you... It is very easy on an ornamental, you know, some species of ornamentals, for a limb to rip off part of the bark when it falls. So if you just start cutting in the, the heavy limb of an ornamental from the top and cut it all the way through, as it gets down to the very end, there's a real risk that it's going to, that, that last quarter of an inch is going to tear rather than be severed cleanly and when it tears it's going to bring bark of the tree with it so what we do is a three cut approach where we cut below and stop that tearing and then we come in and cut from the top so that when the um when the branch falls, it's going to fall clean. Right, right. And then you may end up with a little bit of a nubbin that you decide you need to cut off more cleanly, but then you can cut it off more cleanly with no stress on it. Right. So that makes sense. And one thing, uh, since we were talking tools, and I mentioned concave pruners, um, that is a more specialized tool, but that is recommended for Japanese maples and possibly for some other plants as well. And that probably brings us to one of these items we had further down our list, to collar or not to collar. And when you hang out with gardeners, as you and I do, you end up with raging debates about things that other people don't even think about. And one of our latest issues is to collar or not to collar. What in the world are you talking about, you ask? Well, in when you prune most trees, the conventional wisdom is to leave a collar, to leave a little bit of a limb sticking up because that minimizes the wound, that minimizes the exposed portion of the plant that needs to heal. Um, however, people who are into aesthetics are, they look down their noses <laughs> at that and say, oh, no, 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 you must sort of dig into the plant when you cut off that limb to leave a, a basically a concave surface that will then heal over as cleanly as possible. So I would say there is no right answer to that question. It's basically what are you trying to accomplish? If your primary goal is a clean-looking aesthetic trunk, then you probably don't want to leave collars. On the other hand, if your goal, as it is for us most of the time, is to, leave, is to minimize the risk of disease entering the tree, a collar is a good idea. Yeah, 
Yeah. And what Jim and I decided at the governor's mansion, because of where it was, we decided not to leave the collar for the reason you mentioned, aesthetics, because that trunk, there was a branch that was kind of blocking a walkway. It was a not the right plant in the right place. It was too large. (laughs) And so it would be a visible spot. So we decided no collar that will heal over time. And in the case of a Japanese maple, we learned you want a sort of an oval cut so it'll heal. It heals from side to side, not up and down. That's right. We learned that from uh, Thomas a couple Ash. of weeks ago mm-hmm. from Thomas Ash that when the uh, any tree, is not just Japanese maples, but any tree heals from side to side rather than from top to bottom. So keeping in mind some of those basic principles, um, as well as just... Um, you know what you want to do when you're is for example if it's a if it's got buds on the tree you don't clip it below the bud you clip it above the bud you know that kind of thing because you don't want to lose your bud um and there are some particular strategies for particular plants we are not going to try to go into that so much today uh that's not as much our area of expertise as it is others that we associate with but there we just want to get down to some basics and one of those basics, though, is aim your buds. If you've got, you know, if you yeah. want a, a limb to go in a particular direction, know that the last bud inside of the cut you make is the one most likely to bring to break forth. So if you want it to go to the left, cut it just outside a bud that goes to the left. And, ver- and vice versa. So that's one of those basic principles of pruning. And that's something that was we talked about yesterday at a another fruit pruning workshop that we attended right. in Otago County. It was very helpful. They pl- pruned a, 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 pl- a plum tree that was already blooming on February, what, 25th, and now we're supposed to have another freeze. So that's a whole other issue we can get. Well, and, and that's why the timing of it is so important. That's, that's one why, of those right place, right plant, right place yes, questions. Yes, and also a question of timing. You mentioned at the very outset of this podcast it's pruning season. Well, it's not pruning season for every plant. Oh, no. So what you'll want to do is do some research about your particular plant before you prune it. When do you do that? Um before, if it's got, if it's a plant that blooms before May 1st, like an azalea, I have azaleas outside, I'm not going to prune that now because the buds that I'm going to get, hopefully, in April are on that tree. And if I prune it, I won't have any blooms this season. And let's uh, be careful to point out that when we talk about the May rule, that's a rule that is used here in the Deep South. Absolutely. It's, if you're it's, in... Uh, what Delaware or you're in New Jersey you don't have a May rule you have some other rule some other month (laughs) but it's it's so yes it's it's like so much of what we've talked about on all of our podcasts is that what we talk about in terms of our dates that we prune that we plant that we harvest it's seasonal and and it not just seasonal it is specific to this climate and this region so it will be different for other regions something else to think about your taste really does matter when it comes to these plants. If you have a taste for a formal garden where everything has crisp edges and smooth surfaces, that's going to lead you to prune in one manner. And if you prefer a, a, a garden that sort of looks as natural as possible, you're going to prune in a different way. And you may have taste that you know, you may want to say, I want to stress this plant rather than that because I like the color of this one more. All of that is okay. 
but just just know that your taste matters. Do do what you like. Exactly. And we tend to be the informal gardeners around here. That's our taste. So whatever we talk about, you know, goes in that direction. And one thing we should mention that a couple of basic principles we follow are just like with any healthy tree. Um, with some exceptions on, again, how that tree needs to be or wants to be, is in so many cases you 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 prune out branches of the tree that are growing inward toward the trunk of the tree, <clears throat> because the idea is you want to get sunlight to the branches to so that the leaves or whatever blossoms might be on that plant can get as much sun as possible and ventilation. Ventilation and airflow is important. Also, <clears throat> any two branches that look as though they're going to touch or cross as they continue their growth, um, you need to make a choice and take one of them out. Except. Except. Well, I won't say it's except. Some people don't want their branches crossing at all. But we learned something really interesting yesterday from our friend Mary McCrone. She was describing some options we had for those crepe myrtles we told you about that were the wrong plant in the wrong place. And one of them involved a crepe myrtle whose branches were already beginning to rub with each other. Oh, and some that had rubbed in like two or three places. They were so intertwined. And what Mary pointed out to us is leaving two crepe myrtle branches rubbing against each other is not always a bad thing because in some cases they will rub, 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 form scar tissue, and then they will merge. And when they merge, you get a most interesting kind of wood pattern that um, may be very pleasing to you. And so we we throw that out for what it's worth. It was news for us when she said that, and it makes all the sense in the well, world. Well, there was one large tree that had already merged, but it, not, it had not completed the process because, because what she described was over time, it will actually fill in where the the line of demarcation, I guess you'd call it, is between the two branches and b- fuse as one branch. So it would look as though, you know, it's branching out. Um, I, I'm willing to just let that go and let's see what it looks like in a you few bet. years. I think I'd, it'll be I'd interesting. I'd much rather uh, study it now and see how it develops. But uh, I will say, that's one thing I learned about crepe myrtles. People have different preferences. Some people want their branches to never touch, and they want, you know, three or four or two or three branches coming up. Uh, we actually found a couple of trees that uh, specialty, I'd call them a, a specialized sort of variety, that someone had planted at the governor's mansion that have a single trunk. So, and apparently that costs extra. I don't know. You, know it's a, you don't usually see those. It's, again, as you said, a matter of personal taste. And just a, one quick word here about crepe murder. Everybody who does any study of ornamental pruning hears the term crepe murder soon enough, where people have come in and lopped off at the same height all the branches of a crepe myrtle organism. And yeah, it's not a bad, it's not a good idea. I did it. I have been roundly condemned for my crepe murder of one at the lake. But you did it before you were a master gardener. I did it long before I knew better. But I guess I want to say for the benefit of those crepe murderers out there who now um, regret their decision, know that your crepe myrtle is going to recover from crepe murder. Yours did. (laughs) Ours did. Others do. There's an awful lot of crepe myrtles out there that have been subjected to crepe murder at one point along the way. 
And even after they've, even after you've done that, if you just allow them to grow back for a while, I think you will be pleasantly surprised that they really do recover and don't necessarily look deformed. They they can recover if you give them time. So I I throw that out for what it's worth. Quick word about hygiene, and then we'll finish things up. Yeah, and and I want to mention one other thing um, before we do finish things up, which is, for me, knockout roses I think of as low maintenance. Um, I'm going to be doing a lot of my own pruning to knockout roses. Here's one way in which they're not low maintenance. If you don't prune them back, at least that's been my experience because mine are huge. Um, they, they like where they are, I guess. You're, you're going to have monsters out there. So just keep in mind when we say low maintenance that sometimes it's like we said at the beginning of the podcast. You need to be aware of right plant, right place. And the right plant, the right place for, for knockouts is if you're not going to prune them and you're just going to let them just go wild, then plant them really, really far apart out in the wilderness somewhere. If you're going to put them up against your house, plan on pruning every year. Yeah, and and for me, when it comes to knockout roses, I would say the right place for knockout roses is in someone else's garden. Well, And the right tool (laughs) for pruning knockout roses is probably an excavator or a chainsaw. Okay, we disagree on that one, obviously, but um, I hear what you're saying. All right, now you can talk about hygiene. Just that uh, it's overlooked often and to the detriment of the health of your plants. A lot of plants have diseases. It's inevitable and even the, the most conscientious of gardeners have diseased plants. So it becomes imperative at pruning season when we are digging into the exposed flesh and the cambium layer of our plants on a routine basis that we keep the tools we use to do that clean. So if you're using, you know, your pruners or your saw to cut one knockout rose, for example, and unless you're like me and you want to kill them, uh, you should clean your tools before you go to the next tree or next bush. And the way you, uh, clean them is either with some water and Clorox mixed or with some rubbing alcohol or something to kill any disease. I keep a supply of uh, a bottle of rubbing alcohol in my bucket with my gardening tools so that it's just easy to do. Stick some cotton balls in there with it or, you know, paper towels or whatever you want to use and have at it. And when I prune, I always have a little bottle of alcohol and paper towels so that I can wipe my pruner down each time I change plants. We're we're probably at one end of the spectrum when it comes to concern about hygiene, but I think so far it has paid off. And one other thing, keep your tools sharp. Good point. If that to avoid yeah. damaging the cambium any more than you have to. And to avoid working harder than you need to. You know, you're cutting a lot of you're you're doing a lot of cuts when you're pruning and the sharper your tools, the easier it is to make those cuts. And be careful. I have actually did have a nice pair of sharp tools, and I clipped my finger with it the other day. So keep your fingers out of the way Clip when you prune. Clip your dulcimer finger. Yes, but it's, it's healing. But the point is, keep fingers away from pruners, and you'll be fine. Thanks for hanging with us. Have a great week. We'll look forward to visiting with you next week. Take care. 
You've been listening to Longleaf Breeze with Lee and Amanda Borden. You can call the farm at 334-625-8682. Send email to letters at longleafbreeze.com. Our address is P.O. Box 780-446, Tallahassee, Alabama, 36078. Visit us at longleafbreeze.com to learn more about the farm, to browse our archive, and to look over our planting database. You can also read the daily farm log and check in with Lee and Amanda. That's longleafbreeze.com.